market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that, like the federal budget, tries to be balanced. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, is Dr. Anirban Mahanti. G'day, Doc. How are you? Very good, Kevin. How are you? I'm exceptionally well. Now, I should say, I thought during the week that I hadn't referred in a little while to call you Doc. You are a doctor of computer science. You have a PhD in the dark arts of messing with our heads on computers. I wouldn't call it the dark arts. <laughs> and I haven't messed with your head at least recently, oh, have I? No, not electronically. Yeah, well, maybe that's, that should be <laughs> something I should try. Uh, let, let's, in any case, <laughs> when we talk about technology, Doc is the, uh, is the guru. And as much as I may have an opinion from time to time, uh, he, is, he is the man. So if we're talking about technology... Other than Google, Apple, of course, ignore me and listen to him. Mate, let's get on with the podcast. We've got a lot to cover this week. We've got a bumper full mailbag, so stay tuned for that. A little bit of macro, a little bit of company news, and I will jump on the high horse. So let's get into it. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, let's start with the big macro. I don't know whether to start globally or locally. Locally. Let's, you reckon? Yeah. All right. The Australian budget is almost, almost, almost balanced. A $700 million deficit, 0.2, am I going? $0.7 billion deficit. So almost balanced in, in any real terms. The deficit is 0.0% rounded down. So close enough to balanced. Josh Frydenberg, Federal Treasurer, pretty keen to get out there and tell the good story. Generally speaking, I think taken pretty well by economists, I think it's fair to say. I wonder if you have a view on our budget, a balanced budget. Um, I, I really actually don't, right? I mean, mm-hmm. is it, isn't about, I think we talked about this in one of the podcasts, isn't the balancing the budget basically, basically means that we had the, what, net um, exports greater no, than... No, so this is, this uh, is the federal budget. This is this revenues and tax expenditures. Oh, explain uh, to me so, what this does. This, so, good, good question. We should, we should define our terms. You've reminded me that we have had some feedback once or twice in the past to define our terms. So, the federal budget, the federal government, takes all of our tax revenue from oh, yeah. income taxes, GST, petrol taxes, excise duties, all the different ways in which they help lighten our back pockets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they go and spend some, most, or even more than what they collect on all of the services they provide, roads and rail and health and education and welfare and defence and foreign aid and everything we spend money on. And for the longest time, at least for, I want to say about a decade, the budget has been in deficit. In other words, the government has consistently spent more than it earned. And we say earned in air quotes because, of course, we give them their money. They don't necessarily have to earn it. They get to take it because they're the government. But in any case, this year, for the first time, we're almost back to square. They spent about as much as they collected in tax. Now... In theory, that's good for the overall health of the country, at least for the government sector, because uh, at some level, the government is more trustworthy, more creditworthy. If it doesn't have a whole lot of debt, if the um, if our creditors come knocking, we can kind of pay those bills, which is positive. Now, of course, we know that deficit spending is stimulatory for the economy. If there's a surplus, it's actually contractionary because it's taking money out of the economy without putting it back in. And again, there's different arguments about how much they should take, and let's not get into that because that kind of gets ideological pretty quickly. Um, but overall, I think it's a probably a net positive on a balance sheet basis that we have a balanced budget. But at a time when the economy maybe is not in the strongest of shapes, if you're a Keynesian economist, if you're someone who believes that government should spend in bad times and then save in good times, it might not be exactly the best time to be running a balanced budget. 
So, so then it's a question of you know we could have spent more on healthcare, we could have spent more on roads, um, right? Job creation, for job example. Creation, so, if you believe unemployment's too high, you could go and throw yeah. some more jobs out there. You could put more money into tied grants to uh, foreign aid, for example. So, people have to buy things from Australian companies. There are things mm. governments can do, given the spending, and or by the way, so other people would say, well, hey, how about you tax us less and let us mm. spend the money? So, either of those two ways are ways that a, a, a deficit can stimulate the economy. And given the rate, interest rates are so low, right? I mean, uh, wouldn't it make sense to actually take on more debt at this time to try to spend up and you spend up um, and you build capacity into the economy um, so that there are more jobs, you know, and that mm-hmm. creates more growth. So I, I, I don't know. That's I like, the I thinking, mean, right. Yeah, I think it, on one hand, as you said, it makes helps helps you the credit rating, I guess, which helps you borrow when you need to borrow, I guess. Correct. At the same time, it seems like you know maybe this is not the best time to uh, pull back on you know get, you you could actually do a forty year, fifty year bond and pay very low interest rates at, at the current environment. So, I have mixed feelings, I guess. Mm. I share those mixed feelings. I've uh, look so a couple of things. I I think to on both those points, I completely agree with you. On one hand, I think we should be. Uh, the government should be doing more fiscally to help the the RBA who are spending monetarily. I'm pretty sure I've said this before on the podcast, maybe more than once. The reality is that if you're going to spend, or if you're going to drop rates to stupid low levels, um, you'd kind of feel like that should be the last shot in the locker. And it is the last shot in the RBA's locker. The government, meanwhile, sits back, twiddles at some, say, well, we've got a surplus or we've got a balanced budget. Um, you, know, you guys need to do more. That does seem to me to be, and again, without being political, from a policy perspective, if you had both those levers in your control, you wouldn't leave one in neutral and push the other one all the way to the floor, right? You'd be using both in some degree of concert, and that's not happening. I think to your point about the borrowing cost too, you're exactly right, mate. If you're gonna if you're gonna borrow money, yeah. like and if you're a government, borrowing it at one point something percent, like that is just stupid cheap to borrow cash. I've actually made the argument on Twitter and elsewhere, and I might have even mentioned it here once. Um, I'm not so sure. This this is kind of a, a nutty idea, except it actually makes sense. I'm not entirely sure it wouldn't be a good time for governments to be buying back things like natural resources provided. If the government was to take a, a you know, total ownership, majority ownership, or even minority ownership of something like a BHP or a Rio or a Fortescue or a, a, an oil driller, for example, and buy back some of those natural resources effectively, if you can borrow at 1% or 2% and BHP delivers even 5%, which is lower than it will do, I'm sure, but even if it did do 5%, you're still getting a dramatically positive – like you're actually generating cash for the economy – which is exactly what that kind of investment spending would otherwise be doing. Uh, that sounds like an interesting idea. Have you floated that to the treasurer? <laughs> Unfortunately, Josh Feinberg doesn't take, doesn't take my calls. I have tweeted it out. Uh, I don't know if I did tag him. I, I'm yet to receive a response. I don't tag our pollies very often. I do occasionally. Yet to receive a response from any of them, which might tell you exactly what they think of my ideas. But yeah, maybe maybe it's a conversation for another time. We'll, we'll hold that go, one over go until we... Go straight to ScoMo. <laughs> straight to ScoMo. <laughs> he, he is... Well, so well, I used to live in the Hughes electorate, which is Craig Kelly's electorate, which is right next door to ScoMo. So I am something of a local. I was never a Sharks fan, but I did live in Sharks territory. So I might have some... Might have some pull. Maybe I'll go to the game and sit next to him and say, ScoMo, hey, got an <laughs> go, idea go for just you. just knock on his door. <laughs> <laughs> okay, mate. Let, let's, let's, let's go global in for a second. Yep. The other thing that happened this week was the Fed cut interest rates again. Which you would think would make Donald Trump happy because he's been calling for that, but instead he called Jerome Powell a bonehead, <laughs> which is a direct quote. Normally when you talk about that sort of stuff, you get to make up words. When it comes to Trump's tweets, you actually get to use the actual words he used. Um, apparently the Fed has no idea and no guts, and the guts was in air quotes for whatever that means. Um, what the, would have been gutsy? To cut more or yeah, cut he, less? He wants to cut to zero. Oh, okay. Now, well, so interestingly enough, as you say that, of the Federal Reserve Board, they actually vote, and, and the RBA here, those votes are behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. In the US, it's all public. So seven members voted for a 25 basis point, so 0.25%. Mm-hmm. Seven voted for a cut. 
Two voted for a double cut, a 0.5% cut. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, sorry. Start again, actually. Two voted to remain on hold, and one wanted to cut by 50 basis points or 0.5%. So that's a reasonably split. I mean, still a decent majority for dropping. And mm-hmm. overall, I guess, an even bigger majority for dropping by something, mm-hmm. uh, either either 25 or 50. But in any case, that's not exactly a, a kind of a cohesive board. Um, a lot of poli- a heap of political pressure. It's not doesn't get much more pressure than the president tweeting directly at you, calling you a bonehead. So if you if you want to feel pressure at work, that's probably one way to do it when your boss is the president. Um, on the same side, mate, I'm I'm still a little unsure as to why the US is dramatically rushing here. There's no signs of meaningful weakness in their economy. In fact, they have been the growth engine of the world for the last eighteen months. Still, they see the reason for cutting and blaming ironically global growth. Um, there's also the currency consideration too. How, how worried or how positive are you about these latest rate cuts in the US? Yeah, so the I mean it, it's it's a bit perplexing, right? I mean, this, as exactly as you point out, their economy is really strong. Their mm-hmm. growth is really strong. Un, uh, unemployment is historic. What forty fifty year low or something yeah. like that? Um, you do, you kind of wonder if 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 you're cutting now, what you know? Yeah, well, the cuts are supposed <laughs> to be happening when the economy gets weak. I mean, it's yeah. not exactly. Maybe it was stronger six months ago, but that was unreasonably, unseasonably kind of. Unreliably strong that yeah. long. It wasn't. You know, yeah. you're not going from moderate to low. You're going from no. super overheated to still yeah. strong, right? Yeah. So the only thing that's probably missing from the economy is um, is the inflation. Like, no wage inflation is not. But even that too, I think you know, it mm. depends on how you look at it. There is wage inflation in certain sectors. If you look at certain sectors, there is yeah. wage inflation, but maybe on average, it's not there. And in, in, that's another debate as to whether wage <laughs> inflation, as defined, on or target of inflation of whatever between two mm. percent or three percent. It's achievable or not, right? And maybe that's what right, they're trying right. to achieve. But yeah, the, the the general story this time has been, and for the past several cuts, has been that in you know, the global global economic worries. And and I think uh, if anything, I think it's the Feds are right now. So the Federal Reserve is basically trying to get mm-hmm. ahead of the, the ongoing trade war, right? Mm-hmm. So what impact the ongoing trade war is having is still not clear because you know the tariffs are put and then the tariffs are suspended and the tariffs are put and the tariffs are suspended, right? <laughs> so we, we really don't it's know. It's been a while since we've had one of those, actually. We must be due for one soon. It's been a couple of weeks. Yeah, so they're currently, I think some of them are, are, are in suspension. I've actually forgotten which ones are going on, which is like too confusing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's someone's so, full-time job-keeping track of this, it, sure. it's, it's Yeah, like it's, it's really difficult. So, mm-hmm. so, <laughs> so it's hard to know what the impact of those things are and it's also hard to really know what the full-on impact is, right? Um, <laughs> and and then it's hard to know what the impact is on, on Chinese mm. economy and, and therefore in other parts of the world as well. Uh, so maybe they're worried about that. In, in, if anything, I think it's just basically reacting to uncertainty, not, I think, to da- not to data, but to uncertainty. They basically... Right. Um, which I don't know whether it's their job or not, is to act um, in response to uncertainty. I guess mm. their, their job is to act ahead of stuff that's happening, which is what, what RBA is also doing here, right? Yeah, it, yeah. But, yeah, it, it's all a little perplexing. On this, on this, if, if anything, I'll point out that the, the U.S. rates are higher than our rates, even now, after mm. the cuts, and they're higher than many other parts of the world. And arguably, that I mean, that's kind of how it's supposed to happen, right? Like, the idea of floating exchange rates and floating interest rates, or not floating, but kind of movable, is that the stronger economies in theory would have higher rates and the weaker economies would have lower rates because that's exactly the economic mm. response or the, the, the regulatory, the, 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 the kind of central bank response to these things is to say, well, when things are good rates should be higher because mm. it doesn't need the stimulus. When rates are worse, things should, rates should be lower because the economy does need the stimulus. Yeah. 
and, and 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 you know maybe maybe it's just a, from the wording it appears that this is like you know this is not like a path on which they are like you know they're basically reacting to information yeah and maybe it's going to find its base soon maybe uh, maybe it has found a base maybe it hasn't you know maybe it's going to find a base soon so i don't know like i mean fingers crossed yeah fingers crossed mate let's come home with one last one and you and I have a slight disagreement here. We're not going to spend too long on this because I think our disagreement is reasonably known. But I said to the guys that during the week, I said, to them, look, I'm not a forecaster. We don't do forecast the Motley Fool because that's just dumb, right? And so, and, our, and frankly, I wouldn't want our listeners to do anything in particular with this information because we don't think it's actionable. But it's also as, a, as an observer, I, I have been concerned that the economy was looking a little bit sick, a little bit weak, and maybe you know there was there was a reason to believe that it's possible that a recession would come around the corner. Now, there's always going to be a recession at some point soon, or eventually. We just don't know when. Three bits of data this week, mate. We had the Combank, uh, what do they call it, consumer, in, consumer sentiment, so their, their, their intentions. That, was, that number was positive and, and strongly positive for the first time in a little while. Mm-hmm. We had the NAB cashless sales. So they basically use their their version of retail sales using their, their credit card and FPOS data. Mm-hmm. That was gone from minus, minus 0.1% from the AVS to plus 3% for them. And anecdotally, we hear that a whole lot of house or potential house buyers are back to open houses now post-election. Lastly, we'll talk about this in a little bit of a second. Brickworks, the brickmaker, is saying it expects an uplift in housing starts and construction in the second half of this year. There's, there's been, look, I'm an optimist by nature, but there's been a few, in fact, those four bits of information recently saying, you know what, things are probably better than, I mean, not great, not, not perfect, but if we had been on something of a downward trajectory, there is some reason to believe, if you're that way inclined, maybe things are getting better. Yeah, that's a good point. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't, Completely disagree with anything that you said. Actually, all of us. But I'll always add a but here. Um, I think the thing to remember is that I think what has happened is the tax cuts that the government passed. Basically, mm. like you know, families got like what the individuals probably got. You know, in some cases, up to thousand bucks. Thousand eighty. Yep. Yeah. So, so that that money has gone back. Some of it has gone back into the economy, right? Mm-hmm. And which has, I think, temporarily helped. Does it help tide over sort of the structural problems in the economy? I don't know. Uh, th- that my issue really is that unemployment remains high, especially, and I think that those numbers are being helped by part-time jobs, not by full-time jobs, right? So the you know the, the full-time job creation is still pretty low, and um, so so yeah, I, th- I think if people are not going to get the jobs they want, um, then I think those problems are still there. At it, none of the problems that we have 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 essentially disappeared, right? None of the mm. problems in terms of whether you know um, household income to you know debt or uh, the debt required to buy a house and yep. all of yep. those yep. things have not disappeared. Yeah. So nothing has disappeared, but it could just be that we um, don't stumble and fall mm-hmm. because this little boost has helped. Mm. That that remains to be seen. So yeah, yeah fair. So that's I'm fair. cautiously optimistic is what I would say. I like it. Welcome to the team. Oh, I'm always cautiously optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> Value stocks. Market. Stock market. Index. Share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, mate. On to some company news this week. And I want to, we had earnings season that finished at the end of August and we got two thirds or almost two thirds of the way through September. It's the 20th of September as we record this. So exactly two thirds of the way through. It's another season. It's capital raising season. Now, in my cynical little mind, I, I'm seeing that 
Earnings season finished, and so a whole lot of investment bankers got together and went, guys, how are we going to earn some money? We've kind of done the earnings season stuff, and we've done the mergers and acquisitions stuff, and oh, we need some more cash. We've got bonuses to earn here. We've got Ferraris to pay for and seaside mansions and luxury yachts. How do we make some more money? And someone's got, I know what we'll do. What we'll do is we'll go to companies on the ASX whose share prices are riding high, and we'll say, guys, this may not go on forever. How about you take advantage of your high share prices and raise some capital, raise some cash, get some money from shareholders just to pad out the balance sheet a little bit, just to make sure there's no risk, just to make sure everything's hunky-dory. It's, you know, just, just you don't want to you don't want to be at the mercy of your bankers. Let's raise some money. Oh, and by the way, I'll help you for a fee, of course. Well, Captain, tell me this. Why don't you like? <laughs> people making money that's how the economy continues <laughs> rolling on and on and on right yeah, if the economy is subject to the whims and wishes of investment bankers mate we're in more trouble than superman you don't like life. people riding ferraris <laughs> oh you know like they have the ferraris and maseratis come on it's you got to love them they look nice on the street if there's someone else's it, ferrari oh, not my ferraris well at least you look at it I get no pleasure from that. Just, that's pure envy right I, there. I, I, I want get, a black Ferrari. I get Ferrari. a lot of pleasure. You know, when it goes by the yellow-colored Maserati, I'm like, okay. <laughs> All right. The so, streets of Sydney look awesome, right? So LiveTile, well, yeah, there's more of them. That's right, because the investment bankers are making a squillion. So LiveTile's raised or announced plans to raise capital this week. LiveTile sells on sales effectively. It's a Microsoft product, a small and medium enterprises is roughly what I think they do. You'll tell me if I'm wrong. And Elmo, the business that is not a three-and-a-half-year-old Sesame Street character, but an HR and payroll software provider, it also decided it wanted to up the ante, raise a little bit of cash. Now, maybe they went to the investment bank and said, guys, we think we want to raise cash for the right reasons, and maybe my supposition, my cynical supposition is completely wrong. But, gee, it feels like it's kind of a bit, you know, share prices are high. I mean, look, if you're going to sell capital and the share prices are high, I guess this is the right time to do it, so I kind of can't blame them on one hand. On the other hand, I'm not entirely sure it's necessary, is it? Well, okay. So uh, both of those are recommendations at uh, Extreme Opportunities. So I can talk a little bit about them. Uh, the description of Lifetiles is, I wouldn't say exactly that they sell on-sale Microsoft products, but they basically sell software that enables usage of Microsoft products and other some other products um, mm. in sort of an intranet environment easy or mm. easier. Um, but... Okay, so let's take Live Tiles first, right? So Live Tiles is is growing fast. Um, had what about forty million dollars of recurring revenue mm. uh, as of last reporting, um, but they're burning money. Yep. So uh, you know, uh, looking at the balance sheet, they would have needed cash sometime soon. Okay, at some point anyway. And some point anyway. Now is just as good as a time as any other time to raise that money. <laughs> What's well, so, kind of better than any other time, right? Because the share price of some of these tech companies are riding pretty high. I mean, it legitimately, if I am if I am just being too cynical, yeah. If you are going to sell shares, if I need if I need a hundred bucks and I can sell two shares at fifty or fifty shares at two, yeah, I'm definitely going to sell two shares at fifty, right? Because that's less dilution. Yeah. I get more money, um, and you know, if it's a good time to do it, and the shares are optimistically priced or at least just highly priced, that's the right time to do it. Now, if the shares go and double again in the next month and a half. They've raised capital at way too low a price. They can't know, of course, but that's that's always the ongoing question is how much do you yeah. charge for the capital you're selling? Because it, it's 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 permanent, right? A loan gets paid yeah. back, new shares are forever. 
Yeah, so I mean, one of the issues for a company like LiveTiles would be that if, given the the situation with the cash burn and the, given mm. that you have to spend on sales and marketing, you have to raise money, right? And you can't take the, you know, I guess you can't drive the car all the way close to the edge and mm. then hope to not fall off the edge, right? right? Because if you get too close to the edge, the share price actually might actually be going down because people get worried that you might go bankrupt or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, at, at that point, you might be raising, you know, money. They 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 raised it, what, 35 cents, you might raise at like 15. So that's the, uh, that's the downside. In the case of Elmo, um, Elmo probably didn't need the cash, but yeah. Elmo's strategy has always been to buy sort of small businesses, uh, you know, that mm. they can tuck in the technology, um, tuck in the customers, and then sort of upsell other modules. And, you know, so I, I does get, it really hurt having cash? No. The cash doesn't hurt, but I mean, and, and let me quote my favorite investor, Warren Buffett, just because I'm contractually obliged to do it at least once a podcast. Um, he has said in the past that whenever he's issued shares for acquisitions, the company has effectively overpaid because the value created outside those acquisitions over so much time, they diluted so much of the potential earnings for current investors, current shareholders, that it's cost current shareholders billions of dollars in, in total, not each not had that problem. Um, but, you know, he, he used shares for Burlington Northern. He used shares oh, a few years earlier than that, quite a few years earlier than that. Every time he's used shares, I think I'm right in saying, or at least most of the times, that's ended up being a corporate mistake because the value created simply wasn't sufficiently large to offset the dilution for other shareholders. And, and at some level, I, I mean, raising capital is less risk to the, to the business overall than, than, than equity because you don't have to pay it back. So you kind of, it's permanent capital. Loans you've got to pay back at some point. You don't yep. want to be at the mercy of a banker. On the other hand, I, I kind of feel like Australian companies are a little too eager to raise capital, dilute current shareholders. I mean, if it goes on to meaningful gains from here, oh, probably, that's probably nice to have, but it's not exactly the cheapest thing in the world. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. Like, I, I think I would distinguish between the case between Elmo and LiveTiles. I right. think for a company like LiveTiles, which is which is not cash flow positive, which can't really get to cash flow positive yet, right. Debt is riskier in that sense, yeah. Um, and debt might be that harder to that and, and debt might be harder to come by. <laughs> yeah, that's cost. the other problem, yeah, right? Like you know, uh, assuming I mean, it's available, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, why would I give you uh, debt when I expect <laughs> you to actually pay back interest when you really have no operating profits to actually, <laughs> yeah, pay me anything? Banks aren't banks aren't well so known for taking gonna, things on faith, are they? Yeah, so the banks are not going to give you money. It's <laughs> the simple answer. Um, uh, investment banks therefore enable raising money. Mm-hmm. Um, fair enough. Fair on, enough. On the, in the case of Elmo, though, I agree. In the sense that if a company is at a situation where it can actually get to operating, you know, if you're running at break flow, break even, and you can actually become cash flow positive, yep. I rather prefer um, organic yeah. driven. You know, you can use cash that you generate in the business to buy stuff, and that probably that doesn't cause the dilution effectively um, or causes, you know, I mean, it, you know, again, fair. there's a That's question fair. of whether it's a better, better use of your capital or not. But I mean, if you can buy astutely and at cheap prices, then maybe it makes sense. Yeah. So I am not a big fan of, um, yeah growth via um, acquisition model but that's a, it's a bit it's a very common thing on the ASX a lot of companies actually do that that's mm-hmm. a, it's a common it's a it's a hobby oh totally yeah no I, I, I'm not singling out those two companies it's more just the <laughs> I'm raising it exactly because it is a, a regular problem a regular yeah. potential problem now on the flip side I'm also one to say you know you want to buy straw hats in in summer right oh, sorry, straw hats in winter sorry you, you want to you want to be you want to be able to buy stuff when there's plenty of them they're going cheap um, rather than waiting until the sun comes out, and you need a straw hat, and all of a sudden you can't find one, or they cost a fortune. So yeah. you want to be you want to be a buyer whenever else is a seller, and vice versa. To some degree, if those companies eventually do need money, and the shares were to be half the current price, or something lower, or or Lifetiles, as you say, gets into some serious 
cash flow issues and has to desperately raise money at any price in the market, you want to raise it when you've got some degree of strength and confidence rather than when the market knows you're desperate because that's when they get to take their pound of flesh. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Made a little bit of corporate news other than capital ratings this week. Most of earnings season finished in August, but a couple of companies released results this week. Sol Pattinson, one of my favourites and a personal shareholding for the record, but also its its cousin, Brickworks, the brickmaker, and Premier Investments. The business was one of those names that you kind of let you know the business. You think, what, what sort of business is Premier Investments? Is it a fund manager or something? Premier Investments owns the Solomon Lewis Company, for those who know that name, owns Just Jeans, JJ's, Smiggle, Peter Alexander, a, a retailer of note. Um, and a couple of interesting, interesting points from that, mate. So we just we won't spend too long on this because most of earnings season is done. Brickworks, though, it was like a tech stock this week. I think it released earnings on Thursday, so yesterday. Shares were up what six and a half percent. I mean, that's that's, that's kind of lifestyle territory. That's you know, um, Prometicus Wise Tech Wax kind of territory. Did they announce brick as a service or something like that? <laughs> you think so? They're going to cloud cloud bricking or something? Yeah, or, cloud bricking. No, brick computing. Uh, brick computing. Um, <laughs> You'd think so, wouldn't you? And well, even, even I say worse in air quotes, but the profit actually fell and shares jumped 6.5%. Um, two things. The first thing was the company, well, things weren't as bad as people had expected. And also, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, it's actually forecasting a stronger second half. Now, if you're so inclined, you'd say, well, you know, the, the, the fabled second half club, companies that tell you at the beginning of the year, all right, well, the first half's tough, but just wait till the back half, then we'll make it all up then. And, and that has a reasonably checkered history. That being said, Brickworks is not the most go-go and over-promising of businesses. It's you know part of the the Solpats family. The Milners aren't known for their, um, <laughs> their outlandish promises and and speculations on future growth. So I'm I'm inclined, maybe maybe incorrectly, but I think probably correctly to believe that it's pretty likely if they're going to be strong enough to make that case. Um, shares up six percent. That just doesn't happen. I uh, you know I don't know much about Brickworks other than they make bricks, right? That's a good and, start. And, that's and, that's and, most so, of what they do. But you know I am incredibly, <laughs> incredibly suspicious of any company <laughs> <laughs> that says I'll you know uh, you know Margarita and Sunshine next half. But, but in the second half, that's right. <laughs> in the second half, this this half it was it was you know cloudy and rainy and <laughs> the weather was not really good. Right. So yeah, come, we'll know. come back and check in twelve months, shall yeah, we, and find out whether they delivered let, on their yeah, let's do that on their promise. And they made premier investments. This is uh, this again. This is a record. It's Brickworks is as well. A recommendation of Motley Fool Share Advisor, the service I run. So maybe I'm a little bit biased and as always take those things with grains of salt. Sales growth of 8%. Same store sales growth of 7 point something percent for this business. Just gene sales growth per store, 13%. Like, I'm not going to say that, you know, that, that I mean, these guys aren't exactly walking on water, but how the hell do you manage to get 13% more genes out the door in an economy that's doing it tough, I, I mean, I don't want to give them too many plaudits and overhype the, the result here, but it's pretty bloody impressive, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's impressive. One of the things, you know, you and I were chatting about this, and this, this occurred to me actually lately. So you said that they have actually closed underperforming stores, right? Yeah, so it's closed, uh, man, what was it last year? Uh, a dozen stores, 18 stores, something in the last 12 months, 130 stores over seven years. Yeah, so so maybe that helps, right? If you close mm. the underperformers and you have the good performing stores, then you're on a like-for-like basis, you actually can improve. Well, right? so here's the thing, though. For Just Jeans, the, but the like-for-like was better than the absolute, you're right, so they closed some bad stores, but the total sales still grew by more than 13%. So this is... This so, is this so the total actually yeah, includes yeah. the ones that they've closed? Yeah, yeah. So this oh, is impressive, okay. right? So that is t- total sales up and Samsung sales up, 
by more than 13% for Just Jeans, about 75 I think, for JJ. So, again, the, you know, I, I don't know if the, can we call it a denim-led recovery? Is that I, too I, much? To... I don't even know where JJ is, but, yeah, I know where Just Jeans is. <laughs> basically the same sort of thing. Different different, different version of the same shop, basically. Okay. Um, JJ's in JJ for Just Jeans. So it's kind of this down-market version of the same thing was their kind of idea. Okay. Cheap yeah, yeah, yeah. Just Jeans. And Smiggle, of course, the, the stationery that tweens love, and Peter Alexander, the um, pyjama maker that, that uh, plenty of people do love. I'm, I'm not one for Peter Alexander pyjamas, but... I'm sure plenty of people are. Um, so I get into my nighttime uh, wardrobe habits. Uh, this, interestingly enough, too, mate, of that number, and this is probably a large part of that number, their same, so their online sales grew by 31% and now represent about $1 in seven spent with the Premier Investments Retail Group. So all those, all those, that is pretty, together. that is pretty awesome. That's that pretty kind impressive. Of, yeah, like 15 ish percent of sales growing at 30%. It's kind of a nice tailwind, right? I mean, their, their physical stores did grow as well, so that's you know not not just all about online. But if they can keep that going, that's a pretty nice little fire they've lit under their business. That, that, that's that's correct. I, I don't disagree. You know, there's a thing about good retailers. Right? Maybe they, they they have traditionally been good retailers. They yes, you know they have, they have they're good operators, and uh, you know things like Afterpay, ZipPay, Bumble, and whatever yeah, else. Yeah, they, those those sort of things probably are helping. That's interesting. Um, uh, if yeah. so, though, that should probably flatten out, right? You can only there's only so much more. You can, there's only so many more sales you can pull forward, aren't there? Oh, but you can get more people <laughs> pulling forward more of their sales, and there's you know there's a lot of people in Australia, right? So you're saying don't buy Premier buyer Afterpay? Is that what you're telling me? Oh, I didn't say anything like that. <laughs> I'm, I'm just I'm just saying, you know, that there are many things helping here. So good operator yes. helped by other good operators who are creating a good <laughs> environment. A for, virtuous circle, I like the, it. It's a virtuous cycle. Uh, yeah, virtuous a, a cycle. A buy now, pay later, denim led recovery. That sounds awesome. Lock it in? Yeah, lock it in. Now, mate, one thing we haven't done today, we, you, you've, you've instituted recently, is to get us to be a little more direct and put our uh, necks on the line to, to save any other body parts. Uh, buy, sell, or hold brickworks. Oh, I, the only thing I know about this thing is bricks. They make bricks. Are you pro or anti-bricks? I don't even know. Well, are you long or short bricks? Come on. I, come on. Like, I mean, everybody needs bricks, but <laughs> I don't even know what the P of this thing is. I'm just going to go with hold. Oh, okay. Fair um, enough. That's because fair. I That's don't fair. even know what the P is. I, if I knew that, maybe I'd make a judgment. I have an informational advantage here. I'm a buy on Brickworks. It is a buy for us at Share Advisor at the moment, so it would be, it'd be unreasonable for me not to go with a buy on, on Brickworks. What about Premium, mate? Now, I will tell you, I don't know the Brickworks P off the top of my head, but you asked me earlier, so I wouldn't say I've done research, but luckily you asked me the right question. Uh, Premier P of 19.5. Profit was up, now reported profit was up 28%, but that was the whole lot of um, impairments in the last year's number. Um, I think there's actually also some increased impairments in this year's number for some accelerated depreciation, so a whole lot of moving parts. So 28% reported profit growth, you can probably take that with a few grains of salt on both this year and last year's number. But 8% top line growth, P of 19.5, does it get you anywhere near being able to have a view on Premier? Uh, I'll, I'll take a hold on that. I mean, you know, it looks a bit expensive, but... Yes, but um, sit on that fence too much longer. I'll take a hold. <laughs> I'll just sit on that fence. <laughs> I'll right. ride the fence. Nice. I'm a, I'm a hold on that one as well, actually. I, I, I can't... I, I, Look, the sales growth is impressive. I may be at some point um, influenced to, and this is a hold for us at Share Advisor for full disclosure, um, I may be inclined to bring it back to a buy if either the PE fell or the profit growth seemed more you know, impressive and, and long-term. I say more impressive, 28% is good, but if it's sustainable after you make those adjustments, um, at some point it might be worth paying up for that sort of growth. I'm very, very happy holder. We've held this since I think six bucks. I think it's about 17 bucks now. So pretty happy with that as a from a service perspective. I don't think I want to, 
buy more shares just yet. Um, but it's it made so. It, again, I just I, I probably won't ask for you necessarily feel like unless you have any in particular. But I'm just mindful. We've talked about JB and Katmandu and now Premier as kind of businesses that have managed to grow in a pretty tepid economic environment and, and there's i don't maybe maybe there's nothing to this maybe this is just the way these things happen or maybe it's just there's always good there's always bad there's always mediocre no matter what the economy looks like um but I, I still can't help but look at these companies in the context of the broader economy and wonder whether people we other people are too quick to kind of put a straight line through a sector and say you know the economy's struggling therefore retail is bad there's a few out there that have proven that harvey norman another one have proven that these businesses are well worth investing in if you can, maybe you can't, but if you can find the ones that are going to do well, even in a, a tough environment. In fact, maybe it's the good ones that do best in a tough environment. It's the weaker ones that fail. Yeah, so there's something to that. I mean, the, the, the you're absolutely right that I, I think that, you know, the economy is bad, therefore every retailer is going to be bad is is basically an overstatement, right? right? I mean, you know, it's too much of a simplification. This, the same story, Amazon is going to come and destroy all retail, but mm -hmm. it doesn't happen. Uh, it can't happen. That, And many people have shown that it doesn't really happen that way, <laughs> right? Um, I think that there's a lot of truth to that. With all of these retailers, I mean, the main thing that I worry with any of these retailers, like let's say we talked about JB, for example, mm -hmm. uh, right now. I mean, this thing has a decent fixed cost base, right? Mm. And you basically need to go over that mm. to start making some money. And it all you need is a little bit of a disturbance for you to go under that and you would not make money. Right. And that's going to be true for almost any business with a significant, you know, physical infrastructure, physical yep. base. And you know, so that would hold for even... You for, simply can't pull costs down fast enough to keep pace with falling Exactly. Charges. Yeah. So, you know, I know what we call this operating leverage and mm -hmm. things like that, right? So, Wonderful I mean, when it grows. <laughs> and equally <laughs> bad when yep. it doesn't, right? Yep. So that's the thing, right? And and all you need maybe is a couple of percentage here and there and that, that could really make a difference. So I'm just skeptical. I, I mean, okay, let me put it this way. I would not be short a quality, well-run business like JB, Hi-Fi, mm -hmm. just because of these reasons, right? Right. Um, I would be short if they had a huge amount of debt and they did not know how to manage the debt and things like that. That yep. would be good reason to be short, but I would not be short just because, you know, hey, you know, yep. Amazon can come and destroy it or <laughs> this can happen or that can happen because right, they could continue right, to defy right. that for a long, long time. It does make, the, the conditions make it risky. If there are risk factors already, the broader kind of economic macro factor yeah. adds risk to that no matter what. But if you're starting from a solid base, you're in a better position. You're in right? a better position. So, and, and then, I mean, the other thing is that that doesn't mean that it, just because I'm not sure doesn't mean I have to be long as well. Because right, to right. be long, like if I want to get a good return, I want to buy these things at a good price, mm -hmm. right? And if something is selling at P of 20, that's a pretty expensive price, yep. right? I mean, I would demand... The market average is 14-ish. You're paying yeah. kind of 50% more than the average market price. You want to get something pretty impressive. Pretty impressive, right? I mean, I, for 20, I would demand like, you know, a 20%, maybe a 15 to 20% earnings growth for for the next little while. You're a hard uh, man. <laughs> Unless, of course, low rates changes the whole story. But that's a, that's a conversation for a whole other well, but, but, that's good. but But I mean, that's the thing, right? I yeah. mean, if I'm getting if I'm getting slower top line, although I have to say for Premier, what the top line was, what, 8%, 8% right? Yeah. So, I mean, eventually this thing is going to only grow at 8% if you get 8% you know, right, right. after after you've you know ringed out all sorts of um, you know uh, mm -hmm. benefits that you can, that's mm -hmm. how much you should be able to you know drop effectively. Yep, 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 yep. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. Like, I mean, so so that's the thing. I, I would demand higher growth, and which I don't get. But, you know, I, I would, again, I'm not saying short any of these things. It just looks like the market is pricey. But again, as you said, rates are maybe the thing. I, I don't know. Um, this would be outside sort of my comfort zone in terms of valuation. Makes sense. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, uh, I, I've just pulled the high horse out from the from the stable. I've thrown the saddle over and I'm climbing aboard. There we go. All right. How's that for theatre of the mind? That sounds awesome. I reckon listeners are, are imagining me now on top of Farlap or what? Bone Crusher or Bozam or... It just looks like, you know, you're gone on a, like, you, you, you know. Maybe some poor, you're not, maybe some you're, poor horse destined for the glue factory. Maybe you're not even riding a horse, you're riding a bull. You know, it's a bull, you're Ooh, bull like riding. That. I like okay, that. So. The high bull doesn't quite work, though. High horse kind of works a bit better. Okay, the jumping bull. All right. During the week, I wrote an article for our free site, fool.com.au. Feel free to look it up. Search for Scott Phillips CFDs, and you'll see what I wrote. I titled it Fr- Cry Me a Freaking River. And I've got to say, for the love of God, the CFD industry, the people who basically sell products that let you gamble on short-term movements in share prices, have, or facing anyway, a ban of some of those products from ASIC, the corporate cop. And they're fighting a desperate rearguard action because, hey, who likes to give up easy money from the poor punters who get fleeced by this stuff? And so the industry said, oh, but what about the jobs? What about the tax revenue? It's all very hard. It's very terrible. I couldn't give a staff CFDs, contracts for difference, or as someone said during the week, contact, contracts for dummies, uh, are just horrible, horrible, horrible trading products that will lose money for a whole heap of people. They make the brokers rich. They make you poor. Please, please, please stay well away from these things, at least between now and they're finally and thankfully banned. But geez, the industry having a whinge because maybe it'll cost some tax revenue, maybe it'll cost some jobs. What about the poor punters? You know what costs jobs? Having safety standards on building sites. You know what costs jobs? Not having kids down salt mines. That costs money too. What about the money? What about the salt? Seriously, spare me. CFDs, terrible products. I had so many messages. I spoke to a bloke on one of his podcasts, Matt Michael, on the Life of Mine podcast. If you want to look it up, he's a miner who doubles in finance from time to time. He told me his sob story. Another email or Twitter during the week got in touch with a direct message. Give me his story of a six-figure loss on CFDs. Seriously, investing is wonderful. But invest slowly in businesses for the long term. Don't gamble on the movement of short-term share prices. That way leads to the poorhouse. CFDs, crime your river. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. I feel better again, mate. Well, you'd be better to hear that Premier Investment is up 13%. Hey, hey. Market loves it. All right, I'm out of here. Going to the pub. <laughs> All right. Job done. <laughs> Job done. See ya. <laughs> I probably won't be downgrading to well, upgrading to buy anytime soon, but happy to get the, our members getting the thirty percent gain. That's pretty good. That sounds awesome. On the on the uh, cost base, that's probably about a 40 percent gain. I'll take that. Oof, that sounds awesome again. All right, mate. Enough of me. Oh, you, you helping me grandstand? It's not what we're here for. I, I didn't do that. Anything. I just, that's the market is just doing its stuff. Like I mean, I didn't put the price. We are up. slaves to the market. Mate. All we can do oh, is like, comment on it and, and take, take victory laps in the process. Yeah, because if if I could move prices, I would move prices, but I can't. If you told me the share price was down, of course we would have edited out of this podcast, uh, mate. I, I would get... not say anything. I'd be nice. To you. Very wise. Let's get in the mailbag, mate. We've uh, we've we've rabbited on for a little bit of time already. Let's do it. Let's start with one from a. 
Listener of ours, uh, Vidya on Twitter, who says, Hi, Scott and Doc. Great fan of your podcast. and I'm loving the new money hacks that come midweek. Thank you, Vidya. I hope you're also enjoying money hacks, listeners. Uh, as we have a bit of fun doing it, hopefully we're helping make some of those financial decisions. We don't spend a lot of time talking about on this main podcast, but hopefully gives you a little bit of information and a little bit of kind of actionable uh, detail to go and make your financial lives a bit better. He says, short and sweet, my question is in regards to IPOs. How can I value a company before it's listed? And how can I invest in an ASX-listed IPO and foreign IPOs, especially American? I've heard on your podcast saying if we're right on 60% of our investments, it takes care of the rest. What does that mean? Is it 60% of the IPO-listed investments or 60% of the total investment portfolio? I'm a fairly new investor, so any information is much appreciated. Thank you. Great questions, Vijay. So we're going to take these in reverse order, mate. The, the quickest one is the easiest one. Um, I'll carry that one. We, we are fans, generally speaking. I'll speak for myself, and you can add any value, mate, you want, uh, of Peter Lynch's saying that if you're – something like paraphrasing, but almost direct quote. If you're good in this business, you'll be right six times out of ten. And most people, most investors, most new investors – We'll look at that and go, you mean you're wrong four times out of 10? You're right, you're wrong 40% of the time. How the hell are we supposed to trust you and invest? That's one of the big lessons for early investors is just trying to avoid the need, the desire to be right so often, right? If people say, well, I've lost money on one or two investments, therefore I'm getting out of this thing. The simple reality is that you're going to beat the market on maybe six out of 10 if you're good, and then it'll give you market-beating performance. Now, of course, seven out of 10 would be nice, eight out of 10 would be lovely, um, but generally speaking, six out of 10 is about the sort of expectation we have of ourselves and we expect our members to have of us when we pick stocks, simply because, A, it's not that easy and we don't claim to be experts, or sorry, don't claim to be perfect, I should say. Um, we don't claim to be faultless, uh, but about 6 out of 10 should give us decent results. Any more thoughts on that before I move on? Well, well the, yeah, I mean, I think you've covered it. I, I think the, ma- the main thing to realize, I guess, is that you know an investment technically can go up a lot. It can go mm-hmm. up 2x, 3x, 4x, 5x, 7x, right. 10x. And if, it's like and an Amazon or an Apple or a... 100X. Uh, CSL. Yeah, like yep. those, you know, or Macquarie Group or something right. like that. Yep. I mean, th- those things have gone up a lot if you have held them for that time. Even the big banks. Yeah, so you need to hold on for, for a long time. So if you hold up for a decade or more, some of these things are going to do wonderfully well. And then, I mean, the stuff that doesn't work out, uh, the maximum loss you can get is 100%, you know, and hopefully you realize before that that, you know, things are not working out. Maybe you get out for 50% loss or maybe you get out for 7% loss. So mm-hmm. so I, I think the, the arithmetic works out largely because the upside can be high, whereas the downside is known and limited mm-hmm. to a certain amount, right? Nice. Yeah. And let's go on to his next question about IPOs. So firstly, how to value a company before it's listed and then how to access IPOs. Let's take those, again, in reverse orders because I'm feeling a bit uh, contrary today. Um, access to IPOs, mate, we know it's desperately, desperately hard to do. Um, what would you tell our listeners in regards to accessing IPOs? Oh, sorry, let's start again. IPOs, initial public offering. So this is when a company goes from private hands, whether it's owned by the founders who are looking to sell the business onto the market or get some extra cash, or whether it's private equity investors who have owned the business in the private markets and are now looking to list it on one of the stock markets. That's what an IPO is, an initial public offering. You'll often hear it called a float. Um, so when a company is floated, when it's when the IPO hits the market, how do you get access to an IPO? Yeah, so I mean, so let's start with the ASX, right? So you're, there might be uh, your broker, 
mm-hmm. might have access to certain number of those shares that are going to be sold. Yep. Right. And you could apply. So, you know, so let's say you're with Comsec and Comsec would say, okay, this IPO is coming. If you want, you can apply for a certain number of shares. There's no guarantee you're going to get those shares. Yep. And, you know, you put in your money, like it's, it's pretty much like, in, you know, participating in a share placement plan. Mm-hmm. You, you put up your hand saying, I want some shares at IPO and maybe you get it, maybe you don't. Yep. Right. Um, uh, the probability that you get in a in a in any company that is has got any decent amount of demand, the <laughs> chance that you're going to get any shares is pretty small. And frankly, if you're a retail investor, the chance that even Comsec has access to that float is it's also pretty small. Pretty small. Yeah. So you know, some companies would be nice and say, "Oh, we'll keep you know some percentage of the float for mm-hmm. retail investors and things like that to mm-hmm. create extra liquidity." And but yeah, but the chance that you get it is pretty small. So that's that. In uh, in the American market, the same thing. I mean, again, if you're not with one of the big investment mm-hmm. banks, which is basically bringing a company to the market, you're not going to get the shares unless, so basically, unless you're a preferred client, you're not going to get it. You so in both cases, your first option to buy shares are is essentially when the company's shares start trading on the market. Right. So trying to get IPO pre-market, assume, well, if you can go for it, assume it's not possible. Don't waste too much time and energy trying to trying to find it because there's every good chance you won't. Yeah. That's the answer. Okay. To that. Yeah. And so once they're on the market, mate, so once they hit the market, um, in theory, the question about valuation is reasonably easily answered in terms of the information required by a company that's listing roughly approximates the information it'll have to provide as a public company, including some limited historical information. So you should be able to access sales, profitability, growth. So any of the, any of the numbers you would use, any of the strategy or any of the management commentary you would use to, to value a public company will be available using the company's prospectus, which are the documents that it has to issue prior to listing. So you can grab... What's the most recent big IPO? I'm trying to think of a recent one. Um, yeah, so there are quite a few. That Medibank's probably yeah. an easy recent one. So yeah. you could have grabbed Medibank's information before it listed, um, and you could have said, okay, well, here's the sales, here's the growth, here's the everything else, um, here's what management expect, uh, and you could work out how much you want to pay for those shares, just as if it was a public company. The one watch out I will share is that, A, a lot of companies, and I'm not talking about Medibank specifically here, in fact, I'm not referencing it at all, just to avoid the lawyers listening, um, the 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 activities, the actions, the numbers from a private company can sometimes vary dramatically from success as a listed company. Um, I will mention Icentia, one of the companies we recommended, which has done terribly since recommendation, one of the four out of ten we got wrong and, and badly wrong. Um, this one was doing uh, flying completely high under private equity ownership, listed on the market within a couple of years, was just desperately, desperately struggling. Um, sometimes the performance, you know, PE sometimes knows when to get out and get the maximum price for these things. Sometimes performance is just cyclical. Um, you can't simply know as much about a newly listed public company as you can one that's been on the markets for a little while. Um, so my, my general approach, I don't tend to buy anything that hasn't been listed for less than 12 months. Or if I do, I want to be really, really careful and make sure the odds are well and truly in my favor. Doc, do you have an additional thought? Um, yeah, so uh, I'm not uh, averse to investing um, post-IPO. Like the things to keep in mind is as, exactly as you said. Read the prospectus. Prospectus has information. Try to understand the business. And if you understand the business and you think that you know the business is um, cyclical or has other sort mm. of issues with it, then maybe best to wait if the business, I think, is like, you know, a lot of software businesses might be okay because um, if they've got sticky recurring revenue and you can sort of see a pathway for, you know, them to continue growing, maybe that's fine. Mm-hmm. The the thing to realize, though, is um, what most investors would realize um, is 
if the IPO for some reason was underpriced, the, the shares <laughs> will very quickly get bid up, mm-hmm. right? Um, if 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 an IPO is you know interesting, fascinating, you know whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it, then the shares are going to be bid up as well, and and that's another thing you you have to keep in mind is that the shares might very quickly go if the, if the IPO listing was at a, at a dollar, it, it could actually be trading at two dollars, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and so you have to keep you have to have a good firm handle on how much you're willing to pay yeah. and does it justify you know paying that much in terms of you know the future returns you're expecting don't so, give in to fomo yeah don't give in to fomo my next question we have from matt matt says uh, hi scott and doc great podcast content and brain food again i assume you're listening to our podcast we have recently sold our home and not planning to purchase a new one for two to five years this is, this is one of my favorite questions because it's one of the hardest ones we've heard. Is there a financial product available that will track house prices so that we can reduce the risk of being priced out if of the market in this time frame? Carry on the good work, Matt. I love this question because it's one I never even thought about. Is there a product, mate, is there a financial product around that can let someone who doesn't own a house track the house market? I don't know. Like, I mean, the, the, I'm sure, okay. So the answer for that, for that is probably yes, because there are so many uh, REITs and, uh, you know, that you could invest in. Yep. One of them would probably track the residential market, yep. right? So so the answer to the first one is I think there's yes. <laughs> Second, I guess the bigger question is do you want to do it? And, I, you know, yeah, <laughs> for that, I don't know. Like, I mean, yep. um, is, um, you know, like... I am not sure of, like, I know the long-term historic returns of residential mm. property. The longest one, I think, is the data goes to, uh, comes from Amsterdam uh, in, in Netherlands. Mm-hmm. And th- the long-term record is not good. Like, long-term record over, like, a few hundred years is, like, 2% or 3% or something like that. Also the home of the tulip boom, so bear of that, would you will. <laughs> yeah, that's the home <laughs> of the... So, so the tulip booms did not help. <laughs> no, you're right. And this is the fascinating thing. So house price, and, and the, the global data actually backs this up. Until the late 70s, house prices roughly tracked inflation. Yeah. And, and then, there is no inflation now. Well, but that, well, then from <laughs> right, but then from the late 70s, early 80s to now, house prices have, have grown phenomenally, at least in, in, in historical terms. Yeah. They've, they've grown at about 10 ish percent a year on average over that period of time. And so this is, this, is, this is us trying to look forward, you know, when we're doing this podcast in 30 years and, and trying to work out whether we're right or wrong. Is this the new normal or is this the unusual, um, you know, period of time where we look back and go, wow, that 40 years was weird. It went back to normal after that. You and know, that's the thing we just don't know the answer to. Yeah, I don't, you know, I like to ask the question, like, you know, how, is is house or residential property really a productive asset? And it's, I mean, by all uh, by all uh, means, it shouldn't be a productive asset in the sense that it, it satisfies an emotional requirement. Mm. It satisfies the requirement for living. Uh, everything around it should be depreciating, right? The house, the bricks, the walls, mm. the, you know, the stones, everything. Brickworks got to get some business. Yeah, like, you know, Brickworks are basically going to benefit from the depreciation of the houses <laughs> and the repairs that you do. You, you got right. to, you know, upgrade your house and keep it in working condition. So it's not like, it's, uh, it's not even like BHP that's going to dig the ground and find, you know, <laughs> more, uh, you know, more iron ore yep. or, you know, like more new, uh, yeah, like, um, you know, a coal company finding yep. coal or whatever, right? So, I mean, so that's the thing. Let, right? let me let me fight Matt's corner for a second though, mate. So let's say Matt has has invested in the Sydney property market and done well and he's got a million dollar house that he's sold. Mm-hmm. He's got a, a cool seven figures in the back pocket. Mm-hmm. And if house prices grow by 7% a year for the next five years, 
compound that, he's out of pocket about 50%. So the house that he sold for a million dollars is now worth one and a half. Mm. And he finds himself basically out of pocket by half a million bucks when he tries to get back into the same quality house in the same quality suburb. Um, you know, he's saying, well, how do I make sure? Even if, even if so let's say you're right, then he might forego some returns. Let's say you're wrong, just hypothetically. I know you're not normally wrong, but let's assume for now. Um, he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to, in five years' time, look back and go, oh, man. And we, we had former colleagues who will remain nameless to protect the guilty who did exactly this, right? Sold their houses, waited for a crash, didn't put the money back in, and house prices absolutely took off. And this is in past years. Um, Matt doesn't want to be that guy. Matt, Matt wants to be able to get back into a market at, at or around the same sort of quality house, suburb, street, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so he's, he wants to make sure his purchasing power is not being eroded in a worst case scenario by having money in cash or in something else. Well, in that case, just have the house is my solution. So buy a house. Well, like, I mean, you know, if you have yeah, He's only got cash now, right? So he, has, he hasn't, doesn't have that choice. He sold the house. Yeah. He's got the cash. He's saying, what do I do with my... Oh, I mean, I don't know what, how, what, what price your house is. And we haven't, we haven't mentioned your last name. I don't know your last name, actually. So we'll be able to say it. But uh, he's got a million dollars in the back pocket. And he's burning a hole in his pocket. He's saying, geez. He's talking to his partner. He's saying, well, geez, if, you know, if houses go up again and we've got a million dollars, but only buyers, you know, a two-bedroom unit where he used to buy a three-bedroom house in five years' time, well, I'm going to feel pretty silly and you're going to be pretty grumpy at me. What do I do? I really have no good solution i mean you could as i said you could buy a you know reputable um listed investment company that has you know manager real estate fund uh, real estate um, investment trust that has access to residential properties again then too it doesn't give you exposure to your suburb or the suburb you desire right right so yeah, Matt, my, my view is pretty much the same as docs i have a slightly different outcome look here's the thing you can't you can't match it exactly there are products out there. Brick X is one that we've heard of. It carries some fees. So that's the first thing we might fall off. Second is it would be a lot of money to put into a single investment asset, even a, even a given REIT, right? Because in that circumstance, we've seen REITs blow up. Um, back in the GFC, um, the old Centro, which became Vicinity, which I think is now called something else because if you change names often enough, people forget. Um, you know, those businesses did go really badly. So there's no, there's no, per- and it went worse than house prices, by the way. So there's no direct or easy uh, way to do this. I've got to say, if it was me, if you're not absolutely pegged down to a time, I, it sounds like I'm, I'm preaching my own book here, and I guess I am to some degree. I would reckon probably investing the money in shares is probably your best bet. Um, maybe in you know five years' time, the share market's lower, maybe it's higher. So if you've got an absolute drop-dead date that you have to have the money by, you don't want to be investing in shares because we know that can be volatile. Um, but I think if you are saying, how do I preserve the purchasing power of any investment cash I've got? Um, and you're not prepared to buy a single house. I think that's smart, by the way. Don't rush into that. Um, the best thing, best advice to you would be to invest in the, the uh, a liquid uh, investment class that long-term has delivered the sorts of gains that property has, sometimes more, sometimes less, depending on the time frame. And so I think if you've got five-ish years and you don't have an absolute date, you must have the cash. You can afford to wait, you know, 18 months either side, depending on what the market's doing at the time. I think I'd go share stock. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. Like, I mean, that was that would have been, I would, I agree with that i mean i just can't think of like i don't have an answer for exactly what he wants right exactly yeah. and that's yeah the answer and, is there and, is no easy one easy answer it's no all easy answer is, all we've got all we've got is some alternative i i think you yeah i think you're dead right into being cash by the way matt the, the last thing i would want to do is being cash at this point um i think you want to be in diversified range of assets um 
to Doc's point, you could buy an investment property if you want to get back in the market, um, buy an investment property, and at least then you're in the market. And if it goes up or down in the same sort of suburb, you're probably in the same space. So that's probably not a terrible thing. That being said, paying transaction costs on two properties in five years would be <laughs> would be a killer between stamp duty and things like establishment costs. So I'm not sure if that's a perfect solution either. Um, they're all imperfect. I think my suggestion would be buy shares as lo- buy diversified shares as long as you don't have a drop dead date. You must have your cash on. Mate, last question for today, because we're running out of time, is from Gabriel. Gabriel says, hi, Scott and Doc. This is a question for the podcast, which is good because he's come to the right place. Actually, before I ask the question, mate, I'm going to do a quick a quick plug. If you do want to get in contact with us and have your question answered, your comment addressed, don't forget, you can hit us up on all of the socials and email. We're on Twitter at the Motley Fool AU. I'm at TMF Scott P. And Doc is at Anirban Mahanti. We are at Facebook. The Motley Fool Australia, and I'm Scott Phillips Money on Facebook. And on Instagram, we are at that The Motley Fool AU. And again, I'm at TMF Scott P. Doc is neither on Instagram or Facebook from in a professional capacity, so uh, don't try and look him up there because you won't find him. You can email us if you want to at info at fool.com.au. There's another way to get to us. And of course, as we say sometimes, you can leave us a review or a rating on iTunes. We do read those from time to time. They can be a little bit depressing, but I do it every now and again when I get the chance. Um, and I just have to mention one, mate, we got from a user called JNF17, and that was earlier this month. Uh, the headline is excellent. And JNF17 says, pretty average listen, but got told to give it five stars. Just joking. Love it. <laughs> Which I thought was great. So that is pretty awesome. JNF17, if you're still listening, thank you for doing that. Um, I'll probably I'll probably do another another yeah. rating rant a little bit later. That's, but, that's um, awesome, Matt. That that's was, pretty that awesome. was kind of fun. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So here's, here's Gabriel's question, mate. He said, I should start by saying I love the show and I've listened since episode one. My favorite ep- segment is the high horse. He says, please bring back the audio cue. So I'll have a chat to our producer. Will and see if we can organize that. He says, keep up the good work. Now my question. You haven't mentioned cryptocurrency in a while. And I was wondering what your position on it as on your position on it is at the moment. Man, try and read that quickly. Mm. Does Doc have any thoughts on the technical applications and practical ways in which they could benefit society? Finally, if someone is positive on this trend, what is a good way to get involved? By companies? By crypto directly? Any ideas on Australian exchanges? You mentioned some issues with accessing your hundred dollars a while back, so not sure if that's still a problem. Thank you and full on from Gabriel. Love the sign off, Gabriel. Thank you. Uh, I'll start at the bottom, mate, as I, as I want to do. Um, as you know, uh, and as our long-term listeners know, I did have a uh, – I put 100 bucks in in, uh, in Bitcoin just to kind of follow along. There's one of those things that – and I've said this before. If you want to follow something, having a little bit of money, a bit of skin in the game, just, just focuses the mind a little bit more. You're more likely to track it because you own it. Um, it's one of those weird things about humans, but – you know, psychological biases are one of those things. If you've got them, you might as well use them to your advantage, right? And we simply know that owning it makes us more likely to follow it. There's no reason why it should be the case. We're all rational beings in theory, and we could follow things just as easily either way. Um, but just the reality is we do follow things more closely because we own them. So I bought 100 bucks worth of Bitcoin back in the day just to follow along. I, of course, made the joke at the time, and it remains true to the best of my knowledge, uh, that Coinbase, my chosen exchange, doesn't let me sell. Now, I did know that at the time. We make a joke of it. Uh, but as it turns out, I still can't sell Gabriel, so I still have that Bitcoin somewhere. Uh, and to that point, I still don't... Well, I got a new phone about... Was it a year ago, I said, Doc? Uh, and I didn't even bother reinstalling the app. So the, the cash is out there. Uh, my Bitcoin is out there. I do officially still own it, and my account is there somewhere. 
Um, I, I don't care enough to bother even <laughs> even getting back on the on that particular horse. Bitcoin has kind of faded away from from memory, which is why it's great that Gabriel brings it up. And just because we haven't been asked to comment on it for a long time, I just haven't bothered following it. Um, I've got I think still more than a hundred bucks worth of Bitcoin somewhere, so I've, I think I've made some money on it. Um, but I just simply don't remember. That's all background, mate. The specific question from Gabriel: Does Doc have any thoughts on the technical applications and practical ways in which cryptocurrencies could benefit society? Oh, that's a tough one. Is that's a good one? Yeah, that's that's a good one. Yeah. So on your Bitcoin, you might actually have made money because it. I think I have. Yeah, because it's like ten thousand two hundred and sixty-four US dollars today. There you go. Unfortunately, I didn't have a single Bitcoin. I had some some tiny fraction, <laughs> but I think I yeah I think. I want to say it was about eight grand when I bought it. I think. Yeah, so you've made some and money. the other the Australian dollars fallen too. So Australian dollars, I probably almost certainly made money. Yeah. There you so, go. I'm rich. You're rich. Well, just you can't sell. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hypothetically rich. So, so, uh, so, so cryptocurrencies. I mean, you know, like Bitcoin mm. and others, and the underlying technology, blockchain. Basically, mm. I think they're both very interesting. I also think that they're very early stage right now. They're like yep. they're they're in their infancy, and people are tr- still trying to figure out what's going to happen with them. The one of the things that I don't quite get is what is it that I mean, unless you're going to have a global currency that's going to be one Bitcoin or some form of Bitcoin, whether yep. it's Coinbase or something, yep. I don't see how governments are going to ever give up on controlling currency well the libertarians would say they're not going to but we're going to take it away from them anyway yeah well if that happens then maybe that happens that i don't see that happening anytime soon <laughs> um i mean it, i mean currency is a big tool right our interest rate we can drop our interest rate that moves our currency it helps well, you us want to be careful what you wish for right exactly. if bitcoin takes over and, and reserve banks and governments have no ability to cushion economic blows yeah. it actually makes for a super volatile economy yeah theory. so so i think that i think so right now to me bitcoin enables transfer and okay and then the other argument is that Bitcoin enables, uh, you know, money transfer, simple money transfer, very easy digital transactions. True. Very true. But if you, you want know, to buy drugs or arms, apparently it's lovely. Yeah, like, but I mean, I don't have any problems doing digital transactions. You know, I can pay for <laughs> not, my not buying drugs or arms for the record. Yeah, oh, like, and I'm not doing that. I'm, but I, I am paying via, you know, when we have coffee after we finish this yes. podcast, I will pay for it using my Apple Pay, Thank and you. I will have no trouble. I would let you mention Apple Pay only because you're paying. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, but I would have that's a digital transaction, yeah. and I have no problems doing that. It's tokenized, right. it's securitized, right? I'm sure the same thing holds for Google Pay and whatever else exists. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there is, there's no problem sending money from here to, like, you know, if I want to send money to India or if I mm. bought something from somewhere and I want to pay for it electronically yeah, you that is can no- but that's kind of it's got friction and cost involved you could do it friction relatively frictionless and relatively cost free if you did it using using Bitcoin well but I don't see any friction if I wanted to buy something using Apple Pay it right. is basically one click but if you send money to India for example or to, to America or to New Zealand you've got to pay foreign exchange fees and bank fees you know I think that has improved like so for example I've sent some money to some relatives in India it, mm-hmm. you know you can use Alls Forex Right. For example, as an and, and you know, um, it's listed on the ASX, but you know, I'm not making any OFX, OFX. I'm not making any recommendations of the stock here, but mm-hmm. the service is wonderful. Right, it it gives you a really good rate. The money reaches pretty much next day. Right, when I mean, you know, at some point fees are almost worth it. Like you kind of, you know, someone a middleman is there to take out hassle and cost and effort, and if they can make it, if they can justify their yeah. services, you're like, well, I could go and set up Bitcoin. I get my relative set up Bitcoin. I could try and convert my money and 
or I could just pay a reasonably small fee and just get it done. And and you know, and and there are services out there mm. which would actually bicycle to the people and actually hand deliver the money if they don't have an account. <laughs> so that that also exists. That's so I mean, so I think so I think okay. My whole whole this rant was that I think right now, as you said, mm. it helps the drug lords, it helps those people <laughs> doing illegal arms trade, and things like or or countries which have been cut out of the global financial system. And to be fair, we're not supportive of the global arms trade, and we're not supportive of that. At least not the illegal uh, and, and, arms and, trade. And, 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 and the things like that and the, you know which yeah so so so, so is there a future for crypto and bitcoin mate so the thing is that i think the technology underlying technology which is basically um blockchain that mm. i think has lots of applications mm. right it basically authenticates whether a transaction was made yep. and it guarantees that a transaction is made it's, it's a ba- basically a way of guaranteeing things and it, you can think of it as like a distributed databases with guarantees right. i think that will find application into many things what i don't know but i but i know <laughs> hundreds of companies that are trying things yeah. including you know um like a company like Woolworths might be trying to see how its supply chain of products, you know, which apple was made by which, uh, you know, farm, when was it port, and things like that. Like, you know, that sounds pretty fascinating to me. Put uh, chips in my apples, but leave me the birds and the bees, the yeah. words of Johnny Mitchell. Yeah, well, something like that. <laughs> so so I, think idea, under, I, I think the underlying technology has promise. Yeah. How and where it's going to show up, I, it, I think it's very early days. I mean, if you really wanted to make a bet, you could buy some of these payments mm. style companies mm. and own a slice of, because they are the ones that are going to be using this tech. So that's what very I nice. think. Uh, well, fascinating. I saw during the week, Oxfam are actually, the, the, the cha- aid charity are trialing it to deliver aid into developing world in, in crisis terms, in crisis times, I should say. So fascinating, as you say, just confirming that a transaction has been made and making that making sure that money is there and available yeah. is, is, is some potential use. I actually agree with you, mate. The kind of idea of a distributed ledger is kind of internet banking already. I mean, it's not exactly distributed, but the idea of kind of like, I'm not, it, I'm not entirely sure what problems Bitcoin is solving. It's one of the things. It's cool tech. Like, it's really, really impressive. Yeah. Like, it's fa- it's fascinating. It's a fascinating design slash tech problem. As much as I know about these things. Um, but I don't wonder if it's a solution looking for a problem. Well, you could like you could apply this blockchain thing to like say trades on the ASX, right? So ASX is trialing something with blockchain, right? And yeah, I'm sure of that. <laughs> <laughs> like I mean, so, like I mean, the thing is, it's a, it's a, it's basically a ledger. Yeah. And as long as the ledger is fast enough, you can make entries and you can guarantee things. It's, right. It right. could be useful, right? Except Whether just really does that. Well, but, but it does that using old tech, and you know, kind of works. This improves efficiency what, and kind of like, absolutely works, though, right? I don't know. I don't I, 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 it, it feels a little. It feels a bit like the, the latest thing. That every every CTO, every chief technology officer feels like they have to have a view on and and doing something with to show you're cool and hip and up to date. I'm, I'm not. I'm not convinced. If you add all the money together on it by all the companies putting money into these things, the ASXs and the banks and the Woolworths and the everything else, and the Pexas and well, I, I, I don't know how much money they're all spending on this, but I, I would, I would, if if you offered me an opportunity, I would bet that they end up net net losing money on these efforts. Yeah. So, I, so there's some amount of you know everybody's doing it. I better do it, otherwise I might become right. somehow irrelevant. <laughs> it is definitely part of the thing. I mean, yeah, like I think the technology is cool. Uh, there's right. there is one aspect of it which is validating transactions in distributed way. Yep. Is expensive. Yep. Requires a lot of computational yeah, really power, right? Yeah. So, it's, so uses more power than like some small nations. Yeah. The whole Bitcoin so, network. So, so, uh, so that is the image. There's, there's a there's an immense scaling question. So if, <laughs> if somebody like if somebody like say Visa had to transact verify every transaction that goes through their network using this sort of model. Uh, I think somebody's trying this. I don't know whether it's Visa or Mastercard or whoever. But it just becomes harder. 
it becomes harder and harder and harder. And the question, of course, is exactly what you're saying. You know, we've got a system that kind of works. Maybe it works 99.9% of the time mm. and 0.1% mm. it doesn't work. But not even that. Like, it's 9. Point, when was last of the F plus? Yeah, like, in, it's 99.9999999. Like right? yeah, 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 yeah. And when was I? I never received anybody else's pay into my and account. I've never lost money. I w- and if I do get, if I do lose money on the credit card system, the bank will make me whole. Just, I just uh, and, and you know, I'm waiting for the day when somebody else's pay is going to be deposited into my account, <laughs> in addition to my own pay, uh-huh, right? But uh-huh. that's not happened yet. So, <laughs> so, so I don't know. Yeah, I, I was going to finish here, mate, but you've you've led me down that particular garden path. Um, I have to mention that we did get a tweet during the week. Yes. Uh, speaking speaking of your pay, and uh, and now I'm desperately searching for it because I wasn't going to mention it. Somebody basically said I and, should get uh, a pay rise. We, we are, I, yeah. I can't I can't quote the person. We'll find it in the meantime. We will. I love those people. We, I had I had a tweet directed to me. Uh, and someone was trying to get started a hashtag on Twitter. And for those who uh, don't necessarily follow a hashtag on Just Twitter, is a way it. to kind of add, um, uh, to get it kind of rally around a particular theme, a particular idea, a particular message. This hashtag was get Docker pay rise. This is the best hashtag ever. I support it. You know, this is their way of saying, you know, this is the only way they can get me to, you know, shut up. Basically. Well, it, it was nice of them to, to suggest it. Um, the question was, it was posed as a question. Can we get this hashtag started? And I, I answered on, on Twitter. I, I saw the answer. It was very rude. What was my answer? No. Correct. Let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> that finishes it off. Uh, we've been going for a while. Hopefully you've enjoyed the podcast. Uh, we certainly enjoy bringing it to you as always. Before we go, don't forget you can, and we hope you will, subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money Podcast through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes, partly because we told you to, partly because you love it, like JNF17. Uh, you know, do the right thing. And do tell your friends, please. We're sure they could use a little foolish straight talk, too. Also, don't forget to keep an eye out for the Money Hacks edition, about five minutes or so once a week, bringing you a little bit of actionable foolish insights, a little bit of actionable financial help that might hopefully just make you a better and more profitable investor and citizen. Plus, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week. And on Tuesday, with another dose of Foolish Insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.